Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Dee! I'm getting up. We need to count the kids. What? Right now. Okay, let me put on some shoes. We have to hurry. Carla, what's going on? There's something in the road. I don't know what it is, but we just need to make sure all the girls are accounted for. Okay, you start at tent number one. I'll go to eight, do a thorough count. We'll meet in the middle around tent four. Okay. Carla! All three girls are missing. Tent eight. Look... Their sleeping bags are gone! Is that blood? Oh god. No, it looks like it, but... Let's not... Let's not jump to conclusions. It could be anything. One of the girls could have had a nosebleed. But Dee... What I saw on the road... It was sleeping bags, and... I think there was something inside them. Dee... I think it was a little girl. Maybe more than one. On June 13, 1977, at Camp Scott in Locust Grove, Oklahoma, Counselor Carla Wilhite stumbled upon crumpled-up sleeping bags on the side of the road. At first, she thought they had just fallen off a van or a bus. There were three sleeping bags in total, two on the side of the road and another a few yards away. When looking at the sleeping bag by itself, Carla could make out the form of a little girl inside. But it was unclear as to who it might be. Carla alerted another counselor, D. Ann Elder, and they notified the director of the camp, Barbara Day. When Day and her husband went to check out the scene, Day's husband started to pick up the sleeping bags and could immediately feel the weight inside. They would soon discover the bodies of two other little girls, which meant that there were three victims. Each one of them, a Girl Scout attending Camp Scott. This discovery launched a chain of events that would involve numerous law enforcement agencies, the closing of the camp, the use of trained tracking dogs. Not to mention the largest manhunt Oklahoma had ever seen at the time. June 13, 1977, was the beginning of a nightmare that would last decades. A nightmare which continues into present day as it remains one of the most heinous unsolved cases that has ever plagued the nation. And it happened inside a popular Girl Scout camp in northeastern Oklahoma in the dead of night. A chilling incident that involved the blood-curdling sounds of something unidentifiable lurking in the darkness, hiding amidst the trees. Waiting until everyone was fast asleep and all the tent lanterns had been extinguished. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our first episode on the Girl Scout murders. If you like the show, we'd immensely appreciate if you could leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there because a new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network.
The day before the murders, eager young Girl Scouts poured into the grounds of Camp Scott for their first day of camp. Buses delivered these girls in droves, commencing a two-week retreat that was supposed to entail games, crafts, hearty meals, and campfire songs. Sadly, it would end before it could even really begin. Heavy rain and a thunderstorm set the stage for events that would unfold just hours after the last girls of Camp Scott had fallen asleep. And it would take place in the farthest, most isolated unit of the camp. The Kiowa unit, which housed 27 girls split up into eight tents. And tent eight lay on the outermost edge of the unit, closest to the dark abyss of trees and brush. Closest to the unknown and farthest from the counselor's tent where Carla and Dee were staying. Sometime after dinner and before bed, inside tent eight, three girls wrote letters to send home. An Oklahoma newspaper would later publish these letters in 2002 in memory of the three victims. The first girl in tent eight was Lori Lee Farmer, born June 19, 1968 in Tulsa, Oklahoma. At only eight years old, she was the youngest scout in all of Camp Scott. And she was less than a week away from her birthday, which she would have celebrated at camp. Lori was considered extremely smart for her age. She actually had skipped the second grade after taking an IQ test. She was blonde and bright-eyed. The picture that circulated after her death showed Lori posing for a class photo, her hair in pigtails, her face curled into a warm smile. Daughter of Sherry and Charles Farmer, Lori had four siblings. When she wrote home, she addressed them all. Dear Mom and Dad and Misty and Joe and Chad and Kathy, we're just getting ready to go to bed. It's 7.45. We're at the beginning of a storm and having a lot of fun. I met two new friends, Michelle Gousset and Denise Milner. I'm sharing a tent with them. It started raining on the way back from dinner. We're sleeping on cots. I couldn't wait to write. We're all writing letters now because there's hardly anything else to do. With love, Lori. Before attending Camp Scott, Lori had had a tough time choosing between the Girl Scout sponsored camp and a summer camp through the YMCA. It was Lori's mother, Sherry, who made the final decision, a choice that would haunt Sherry Farmer for years to come. The second girl of Tent 8 was nine-year-old Michelle Heather Gousset from Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. She was born July 22, 1967. Before she headed to Camp Scott, she told her mother she was very excited to go. But she had one concern, her African violets. Michelle was quite the botanist and favored those flowers above the others. She wanted to make sure her mother would look after them. Her mother assured her she would take good care of the plants. Other than tending to flowers, Michelle enjoyed reading and playing soccer. The last letter she would ever write was to her aunt. Michelle wrote, Dear Aunt Karen, how are you? I am fine. I am writing from camp. We can't go outside because it's stormy. Me and my tent mates are in the last tent in our unit. My tent mates are Denise Milner and Lori Farmer. My room is shades of purple. Love, Michelle. The third Girl Scout in Tent 8 was Doris Denise Milner, who mostly went by Denise. At 10 years old, she was the oldest of the three and, like Lori, was also from Tulsa. She was born February 5th, 1967. Of the three, Denise was the most reluctant about attending the two-week camp. She was very close with her family, especially her five-year-old sister, and she didn't want to leave home. 
Denise's mother told her that she should just give camp a try, that it would make her more independent, but if she really didn't like it, she could come home early. Well, the first day, Denise wasn't so fond of it. In fact, she made this clear in her letter to her mother saying, I don't like camp. It's awful. The first day it rained. I have three new friends named Glenda, Lori, and Michelle. Michelle and Lori are my roommates. Mom, I don't want to stay at camp for two weeks. I want to come home and see Cassie and everybody. After their letter writing, the girls went to sleep. Not too long after this, Carla Wilhite, one of the camp counselors, was awoken by a disturbing sound. She recalled later that it happened around midnight or so. Dee, you awake? Huh? Can you hear that? Is it an animal? It doesn't sound like any animal I've come across. I'm gonna check it out. Take a flashlight and be careful. As soon as Carla pointed the flashlight in the direction of the sound, the noise stopped. After that, she walked the grounds to make sure everything was all right. Everything seemed normal, so she headed back to her tent and went back to sleep. But the next morning, around 6 a.m., on her way to the showers, Carla found something. A sleeping bag at the fork in the road and two others a few yards away, slightly deeper into the woods. Camp director Barbara Day and her husband reported to the scene, and that's when Barbara made a call. Highway patrol. Yes, this is Barbara Day calling from Camp Scott. We need three ambulances. Okay, what seems to be the emergency? We found three girls. Dead. Okay, can you provide any other information? I don't know. We don't know what happened. We don't know if it's a homicide. (laughs) We just found them. Okay, ma'am. Just stay calm. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. On Unsolved Murders... We explore the facts of real-life true crime cold cases. But if you're looking for more true crime cases with a bit of a twist, you should check out the ParCast original Female Criminals. When you think of a criminal, what do you picture? You picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. I bet you didn't think it could be the mother around the corner or the little old lady next door. Female Criminals investigates the lives of the world's most notorious female felons and explores the stories behind their dangerous crimes. These criminals come in every form, from serial killers and assassins to bank robbers and drug lords. Female Criminals is like a mystery and crime documentary rolled into one. New episodes premiere every Wednesday. Follow Female Criminals free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And now let's continue the story. Once camp director Barbara Day made the call, she instructed her counselors to launch a quick evacuation of all the tents. With three campers found dead on June 13, 1977, the counselors hurried to ensure the rest of their charges were safe. 
Every last camper was brought to the main building of the camp and kept there until Day and her team could figure out the best course of action. Day called the Magic Empire Council, the organization that headed the Girl Scouts, to alert them of what had happened. And then the calls went out to the victims' families. Apparently, the parents of Lori Farmer weren't at home when the council called them. Are they there? No one's picking up. Who's listed as a second emergency contact? Um, friends of the family. Call them. Yes, hello. I'm calling from the Magic Empire Council regarding one of our Girl Scouts who is attending Camp Scott. You were listed as an emergency contact on Lori Farmer's forms. Yes, that's right. We couldn't reach Mr. and Mrs. Farmer. Is everything all right? No. I'm terribly sorry to report that that Lori has died. What? I, I don't understand. I'm not at liberty to say much. In fact, I've been advised not to say anything. Just that it happened. What? Was it an accident? It may have been, but I believe there was some foul play. Foul play? My God, what does that mean? Will you be able to relay the news to Mr. and Mrs. Farmer? I... I don't understand. Uh, that's all I can say right now. Those are the only details I have at this time. No official news release had gone out. While all this was going on, all the Girl Scouts at Camp Scott were put on buses and sent back to the Girl Scout headquarters in Tulsa. But then, news of the incident broke. We've just gotten word of breaking news. Three young girls attending a Girl Scout retreat at Camp Scott were slain early this morning. Did you hear that? It can't be. The Sheriff's Department, along with the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, have reported to the site. No further details have been released. Turn the car around. What? We have to get down there. We have to see if Nancy's okay. When authorities reported to the crime scene, they were shocked. They first found Denise Milner on the ground, covered by a sleeping bag. Authorities unzipped another sleeping bag to reveal young Lori Farmer. The crime scene photographer tasked with capturing images of these victims couldn't help but say, my God, my God. Inside the third sleeping bag was the body of Michelle Gousset. The killer had used electrical tape and rope to bind and gag the victims. Lori and Michelle had been bludgeoned to death, but Denise was strangled. No murder weapon was or would ever be recovered. Which probably meant the killer took it with him, or her. A blood spatter analysis suggested that Lori and Michelle were killed in the tent, but Denise had been dragged through the woods and then killed there. Sheriff Weaver of the Mays County Sheriff's Office was heavily involved in the case. What evidence have we bagged? Well, sir, a red six-volt flashlight, a partially used roll of black electrical tape, some nylon rope, and a bloody shoe. There's also some muddy footprints inside the tent. Right. And Sheriff Weaver? Yes? I found these. Eyeglasses? Yes, they're women's glasses. They belong to one of the counselors? Yes, but see, I found several pairs. They were taken from various tents and found discarded throughout the camp. Discarded? 
That's what it seems like. Oh, that's strange. Was the killer having trouble seeing? Yeah, it sounds like he would try on a pair of glasses and discard them if they weren't the right prescription. Could the killer have had some sort of strange fetish associated with women's glasses, or was he really looking for a pair he could use? Well, that's a good question. One I think only the killer could answer. The Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, or OSBI, eventually took the lead on the case, and there were two agents in particular that had significant involvement in the investigation. One was Agent Larry Bowles. In an interview, Agent Bowles recounted what happened when he first saw the victim's bodies at the medical examiner's office in Tulsa. I had investigated a lot of homicides before this, but I wasn't really ready for what I saw. It was obvious they had been sexually assaulted. There was an overkill. Excessive force was used to subdue these little girls. He then went on to describe Lori Farmer, the youngest victim. I'll never forget what she looked like. She looked like she was asleep, and I thought that maybe she'd wake up. Another agent in the investigation was Harvey Pratt, a Cheyenne and Arapaho Indian tribe member. Now known for his long 50-year career as a forensic artist, he worked undercover on this case. Because of his knowledge of Native American history and culture, he would infuse the case with some valuable insight. Yes. It was Pratt who first thought that because there was a high concentration of Native Americans in Oklahoma, that it would be smart to look into some of these communities during the investigation. Once evidence was collected and the victims were examined during their autopsies, authorities spoke with state medical examiner Dr. Neil Hoffman. Agent Pratt, Agent Bowles, I have examined the victims. Were they sexually assaulted, Dr. Hoffman? I'm afraid so. All of them? Yes. I found traces of semen in all three. Dear Lord. And as the initial manhunt began, it was already time to call in the big guns. Or actually, the big dogs. On June 15th, two days after the murders, canine trackers known as the Wonder Dogs were brought in from Pennsylvania to help the investigation. The two German shepherds, Harris and Spart, and a Rottweiler named Butts were specially trained for sniffing out evidence. It was their job to determine the locations where the killer entered and exited the camp. According to their owner, the dogs had solved an eight-month-long case by sniffing out the perpetrator during a lineup. The owner guaranteed that the dogs would lead to a break in this case within two days. Quite a tall order. No kidding. Sadly, this didn't really come to fruition, and to make matters worse, an agent on the case said he had heard that a Cherokee medicine man had put a curse on the dogs. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. A curse? That's right. Uh, Most of the authorities who heard this thought it was ridiculous. One of them who didn't think it was crazy, Agent Pratt. As a Cherokee Arapaho Indian, he was very familiar with Cherokee medicine, a mystical form of mental and physical healing that blends spirituality with nature. Yes, it focuses on specific herbs to treat ailments, so it has practical applications, but there's also this air of almost magic associated with it. And so, when someone mentioned that a Cherokee medicine man may have cursed the dogs, Pratt didn't immediately rule it out. That's right, and not too long after, one of the dogs fell ill and died. What was the cause? Uh, It is believed it was heat exhaustion, but that's never been confirmed. Ew, scary. Now, just wait. Sometime after that, 
One of the other dogs died. It ran out in front of a car and was hit. Did any of the Wonder Dogs survive? Yes, Spart, one of the German Shepherds, survived. So the Wonder Dogs didn't deliver on their owner's promise? No, but authorities got wind of something new, and this took them down a trail that seemed promising. Investigators discovered that a nearby ranch on a 110-acre property had been burglarized the same night as the murders. Three important items were missing. Nylon rope, electrical tape, and a red flashlight. The exact same items found at the crime scene. Owner of the farmhouse is Jack Schroff, 58 years old. We contacted him. He claims he wasn't at the property on June 12th or the 13th. Well, Bowles, I say we bring him in. Make him take a polygraph. Schroff was brought in for a polygraph, and he passed. His alibi also checked out. And this trail soon became a dead end. But Pratt kept believing they'd get a break in this case. Yes. In fact, at one point in the investigation, he left his co-workers to have a ceremonial smoke outside. He was hoping for clarity. Pratt, can I join you? Of course. What are you thinking? I'm thinking someone's going to come forward. Someone's going to help us. Someone did come forward. Ten days after the murders, a farmer called in with information. OSBI, Agent Bowles. Yeah, I was told to contact you with information that might be of use to the case of them missing girls. Yes, you've reached the right place. I saw something strange the other day. I didn't think too much of it, but I think it was worth mentioning. Yes, any information is helpful. What did you see? Well, I seen a man in a cave. He was just sitting there. Was he alone? Yeah, all by himself. He saw me, I know he did. He ain't there no more. Where is this cave? Right by my property. And where is that? Have you got a pen and paper? I'll give you the address. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. And now let's continue the story. In late June 1977, days after the sudden murders of three Girl Scouts, agents Larry Bowles and Harvey Pratt went to check out a suspicious cave. Someone was definitely squatting here. Yep. The farmer said he saw only one man in here. Why are there so many fires? There's four. Seems excessive. But could the fires represent the three victims? And the fourth, maybe the killer? Hmm. I don't know about that. Pratt, what is it? Before I say it, I need you to agree to something. What? That you'll hear me out, as strange as it may sound. Well, how strange are we talking? The number four is of great significance to my people. You mean Native Americans? That's right. I got some Cherokee in me too, Pratt. But I don't know much about the number four. Well, think about it. There's four seasons, for example. Four winds... And it especially applies to practices involving medicine. These four fires. I have a strong suspicion there was some kind of ceremony taking place here. Especially since there's all those cigarette butts with the filters torn off. What's that mean? Well, tobacco is an important part of the medicine. Smoking is ceremonial. But a filter separates you from it. It dilutes it. You see? No filter means you're closer to the medicine. Pratt was on to something. 
And when investigators also found two photographs inside that cave, the pieces started coming together. The photos were of two different women, well-dressed and done up. At the scene, investigators didn't know what to make of this discovery. It wasn't until a little later that the photos were traced back to their photographer, a convicted rapist who had served time at Granite Reformatory in eastern Oklahoma from 1967 to 1969. During his time in prison, he worked in the darkroom and developed photos. It was one of the activities that were offered to the inmates, and this convicted felon was pretty good at it. But in 1969, he escaped and went on the run. And guess what? In 1977, he was still on the run. That man was Gene Leroy Hart, and he had developed photos taken from a wedding in 1968. Those same photos found in the cave. Hart, like Agent Pratt, was also a Cherokee Indian. When investigators made the link between the squatter in the cave and Gene Hart, the extensive manhunt officially began. And it wasn't just law enforcement who participated. Locals banded together to find the man responsible for such heinous acts against children. Richard Gousset, father of victim Michelle Gousset, joined the group of volunteers searching in and around the camp. Authorities and volunteers set out to search about six square miles of land marked by hills and forests. The area was known as Skunk Mountain. All right, folks, collect everything that might be of use. And if there are any areas that look lived in, please flag them to authorities. Do not go after anyone on your own. Make sure to notify an officer of the law to pursue. But was it only one man responsible? And if so, where was he hiding now? Authorities spared no expense and made sure to use the latest high-tech equipment available. Heat-seeking devices were attached to National Guard helicopters. Pilots in communication with SWAT teams on the ground flew over the camp hoping to locate Hart. It was believed that Hart may have had an advantage, considering all the caves in the area. But investigators continued to pursue. They believed they'd draw him out. New items were found, including men's jackets, some jean pants, a t-shirt, some empty soda cans, and egg cartons. Probably just discarded trash, right? Authorities had to look into anything and everything at this point, but sadly, no new evidence really came to light. And so, the case slowed down a bit. Well, more like stalled. That is, until April 6th, 1978, almost a year after the murders. Agent Bowles met up with a man by the name of Michael Wilkerson, an agent who had just been put in charge of the continued manhunt a week earlier. Wilkerson would also become a prominent figure in this case. A confidential informant of Bowles had contacted him with information regarding Gene Hart. According to this informant, Hart was staying in the Cookson Hills with a medicine man, a revered role in Native American culture. According to a website dedicated to Native American culture, a medicine man would facilitate, quote, communication with the spiritual world when the tribe is facing adversity or need to obtain solutions to problems afflicting the community, including sickness, end quote. Encyclopedia Britannica offers a similar definition of a medicine man's purpose, quote, traditionally, Medicine people are called upon to prevent or heal the physical and mental illnesses of individuals as well as the social ruptures that occur when murders or other calamitous events take place within a community. 
Wow, so could this medicine man that Hart was staying with been trying to do just that? Was he working to fix Hart's mental state? And in doing so, heal a broken community traumatized by the death of three little girls? Or was he loyal to Hart for some reason? Why didn't this medicine man report Hart to authorities? That's a very good question. He was harboring a known fugitive. Agent Bowles and Pratt located the wife of the medicine man and decided to confront her. They were on a quest for information, and they didn't have any time to waste. The following is taken directly from a police recording from that meeting. I want the man that killed three little girls, and you all are hiding him. If you're playing a game with us, we're through playing games. We're starting to indict people. We know all about you, and like I said, I'm not interested in you all. But we're interested in Gene Leroy Hart, and we want him. And if you don't cooperate with me today, you're going to be indicted by a federal grand jury. And if it's a game to you, I can assure you, it's going to stop being fun right now. Agent Bowles also told her that the fathers of the victims were hounding the police for information on the person helping Hart evade authorities. We haven't given any names, but I can assure you by the time the sun goes down tonight, they're going to know your names and your addresses. Bowles was bluffing. It wasn't likely that he was going to release that information to the public, but the woman took the threat seriously. She eventually agreed to show them where Hart was hiding out. In a van, she took Pratt to the location so he could scope it out. Then the raid was planned. In one vehicle, Bowles and Pratt quietly approached the woods outside a cabin deep in the brush, and they waited for the lead car the one Wilkerson and a few other agents were in. Once the car approached, they all emerged from their vehicles and, adrenaline pumping, ran towards the cabin. They immediately saw that the back door of the cabin was cracked open. Right inside the door was a man, Gene Hart. Bowles pointed his shotgun at him. Safety off. Gene, we're state agents. You're under arrest. We have you surrounded, so just give up. Investigators were now facing their prime suspect, but would he surrender or flee? And what about the medicine man? What would he do? And how did he fit into this scenario? Even though the manhunt led to the discovery of Gene Hart, there would be another suspect who had come out of the woodwork. And as the case changed hands over the years, fresh eyes would bring new insights and ideas. One of these would revolve around the theory of multiple killers. So, if Hart was involved, did he act alone? Or was there someone else helping to carry out these diabolical deeds? With his gun pointing at Gene Hart, Agent Bowles had the upper hand. He could shoot him if he wanted. With his finger on the trigger, he had made it all the way here. And Agent Pratt was by his side. They had found their killer. The manhunt was over. Or was it? Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on Apple Podcasts. Tune in, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Tuesday, and next Tuesday we'll continue our investigation into the Girl Scout murders. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time.
Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Jessica Mallow and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Austin, Kimberly Holland, Harris Markson, and Steve Pinto.